Again, Father, we just turn to you in humble dependence. And Father, again, we rejoice in the fact that you have uh, deigned to speak to us, your children. We ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Leon Morris, in his commentary, entitled this section, The Christian's Triumph Song. Ben, I think it was last week in our sermon, we went over the fact that uh, in Colossians there is a song to be sung. And so um, he entitles it the Christian's triumph song. He then continues by saying, Paul, quote, Paul rounds off the first half of his letter, letter with a passage which Christians have always regarded as one of the most wonderful parts of a most wonderful epistle. Douglas Moo, on the other hand, entitles it The Celebration of the Believer's Security. Though he does differ from Moo, he observes, quote, We may view this beautiful hymn-like celebration of our security in Christ as a response to what Paul has just said, end quote. And then finally, going back a long way to John Calvin, he says concerning Paul, and I quote, he now breaks out into exclamations by which he set forth the magnanimity which, with which the faithful ought to be furnished with adversities when adversities urge them to despond. And he teaches us in these words that with the paternal favor of God is connected that invincible courage which overcomes temptations. We're living in a time when there are defections from the faith, divisions and divisiveness in families. There are new and ever-developing diseases. Deception is constantly thrown at us, and we need, we need a defense against despair. We were created and made for worship, to joy and rejoice in the triune God, not to be drugged through the filth of this earth in despair and discouragement. There are, last Sunday, or this last several Sundays, we've been engaged with one particular question. Are you good enough Christian? Now, I don't want to frighten you this morning, but we're going to look at seven questions in one service. But I think we can handle them timely. Question number one, and it's right there in your text. What then shall we say to these things? When I was studying, the first thing that I wanted to say is, what do I say to these? Hallelujah! Uh, praise be to the Father. Praise be to the Son. Praise be to the Holy Spirit. But without context, we might ask the question, what things? And we've jumped in, chapter 8, right in the middle of an epistle. And uh, to make sense of it, we have to know that it refers to something, these things. And what is Paul referring to? Well, uh, may I suggest a few things from the previous chapter? The gospel of God is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What do you say to that? While we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What do you say to that? God shows his love 
towards us, and while that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do you say to that? While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. For as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no condemnation, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we can cry, Abba, Father. You hear the Heavenly Father asking you this morning, what can you say to these things? William Hendrickson puts it this way, quote, What do you conclude from these things, all of the things that Paul has been expounding, and we only scratch the surface at eight chapters? So what do we conclude from these things? I believe that Paul's intention in asking his audience this question is to prepare their minds and their hearts for the next question. Question number two. If God is for us, who can be against us? And in these previous chapters, the thrice holy God, the just God, the faithful God, the righteous God, the pure God, the judge of all the earth, the creator of the earth, has made a way that we can become righteous. And if that God who spoke the world into existence, who sent his son and raised him from the dead, uh, is for us, who can be against us? We put it this way, we, when we consider all of the things that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, it is evident that he is for us. No one can be against us in any meaningful way. Now, we recognize that there are lots of people who are against us. I, I read... Just this week, a documentary film writer uh, castigating and blaming everything on Christianity. If I called his name, you'd know who he was. There are people who are against the church. There are people who were against Christ and crucified him. And there, were the, there are those who would do that again today. <clears throat> These realities, this is not to ignore, I'm not trying to ignore or minimize the reality, reality of the battle we wage each day with the world, with the flesh, and with the devil. These realities are the experience of our daily lives. But we also, by faith, believe that according to God's word to us, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption through the forgiveness of sins. Certainly, victory over fear and despair is ours because the victory is his, and we are hid in Christ Jesus. This is not only relevant to the church in Rome, which was about to undergo persecution, and in that Preceding that time in, in the uh, first century, those in Jerusalem, the church was persecuted by Paul. So persecution was a real thing. Uh, death and all of the things that we'll look at in the, in, in, the, uh, in the rest of this chapter speak to this. But we can have victory in and through these things by faith 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Question number three. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't really know how to illustrate this other than it speaks for itself. God gave the darling of heaven. God gave the son, the second person of the Trinity, to come to take on flesh, to dwell among his brothers, to bear our sins. Like the second question, the third, like the first and second question, the third question is preceded by two wonderful truths. God did not spare his son. He simply did not mitigate the degree of suffering. Christ fully suffered. He completely died. So he did not mitigate the severity of his suffering, but he gave him up for us all. I'm sure that we, that I cannot fully comprehend the magnitude of these statements. We cannot fully comprehend the perfect love and bliss shared in the eternal from all eternity past, triune relationship. We have no comprehension of love because we would not exist except for the love of God. All that we know proceeds and is a gift from Him and flows out of that triune relationship to us. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, and so on. What is missed too often or too often taken for granted is what this giving up meant to the triune God. Again, I agree with Hendricks, Hendrickson's observation, quote, if this does not mean that, in a sense, giving up his only begotten and fathomable, can't say it, immense love for the beloved son was for the father a genuine sacrifice, words no longer have meaning. And the love of the Son for the Father compelled him to say, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is an expression of God's love for us in the Son who loves the Father. As I was preparing, I couldn't help but think of a song that we used to sing from Amanda Green's poem, O Christ, What Burden, Bow Thy Head. Here's just two verses. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ was full for thee. But thou hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love, drank it up. Now blessing draught for me. Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood, beneath it flowed thy bruising Healeth me. He gave him up for us all. 
He gave him up for us all. Who are the all? Sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah put it this way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And still, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female, old, young, slave, freeman, for us all. Yet by his grace, all are those who love God. Right? Those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called it. And those who called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In short, it is the elect of God. So he spared not his own son, but he gave him up. It only goes to reason that he will certainly graciously give us all things. So, not his question, but my question. What are the all things? Um, and don't, don't overlook that all these things are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> they are the same all things that he is working together for good in the previous verses. All things means all things, whether they be physical or whether they be spiritual. It's our physical life, our health, our food, our clothing, our shelter, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our vocations, our pleasures, our families. In short, it's all of the creation that God has gifted to us. What are the spiritual things? We can't begin to enumerate on these, but I'll just use this passage from 2 Peter verse 1. I mean chapter 1 verse 3 and 5. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious, very precious and great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. He who spared not his son, who who gave up his son, will he not graciously, not by obligation, I think sometimes we think that being gracious is God's job description, something that he has to do. He does it freely. It's who he is to be gracious and loving. And so he's not going to get stingy with us after he has given the darling of his heart. Question number four. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies In the book of Zechariah, <coughs> chapter 3, verses, uh, meant for that water to help and it choked me. Try again. <coughs> we have this vision. <coughs> then he showed me Joshua the high priest 
standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken, away your, iniqui I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them be clean, but let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. <coughs> Satan is not mentioned again. The Lord rebuked him. And we hear not another peep out of him. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is a liar. He is the author of lies. He is a murderer from the beginning. He, along with his surrogates, he's not uh, omnipresent, but he has infiltrated this world. <coughs> and there are those who accuse the brethren. Unfortunately, sometimes the brethren accuse the brethren. But how silly. God is forced. The thrice holy and righteous God has declared that all those who put their faith in his Son are justified. They are counted righteous. Though many may cast dispersions and accusations against, <clears throat> against us, we will never stand before a jury of our peers. We will stand before the one to whom all judgment has been given. We will stand before the throne of Christ who will serve as both judge and defense attorney. And the verdict that was presented for those who put their faith in him is innocent, <clears throat> righteous, justified because they are hid in Christ and clothed with his righteousness. As I was preparing again, my mind wandered and I couldn't help but think of uh, uh, Peter. Uh, Peter was uh, staying in uh, Joppa in the house of a tanner and he was hungry and he has this vision and you know the story, a, a sheet came down and it was filled with all kinds of unclean animals. And uh, the Lord says, arise, Peter, and eat. And he, he didn't. And he says, arise, Peter, and eat. And he said, Lord, I have never eaten anything that was unclean or common. And the Lord says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. God has justified, and so we stand justified by his declaration. Hendrickson again says, when God justifies a person, all accusations at once lose their validity. Question number five, who is to condemn? We have this crescendo of truths to the answer to this question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here again, the question is of how God can be just and justifier 
of sinners is explained. Jesus died. The godly for the ungodly. Uh, he who knew no sin was made sin that we might become, we might be made the righteousness of God, Christ, God in him. <clears throat> and now he has been raised from the dead for our justification. And he sits today, right now, at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And I can't help but believe that some of that intercession or the, I don't know how accusations come up to heaven. Sometimes, as God knows us in our own beings, we condemn ourselves. I think perhaps this is what I face the most in the church, is people who are under the bondage of self-condemnation. And he's, the, the scriptures say, if our conscience condemns us, greater is he than our conscience. And so we put our faith and our trust in him and we believe that there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. There are two questions in kind of combined in this last section of this song, if you would. Question number six. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The short answer is nothing. Christ's love is perfect. It is complete. It is without flaw. There's no defect. It doesn't start and stop in spurts. It is not fickle. It is eternal. God loved us before the foundation of the earth, and he will love us into eternity future. God's love is perfect. It is infinite without beginning and within. And then he picks up a question following in, again, question seven. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And yet, so many times, again, the confession and the people that I speak to sometimes, they, they feel, well, I haven't done enough to earn God's love. He loved us while we were yet sinners, and Christ died for us. We could be re re uh, redundant and repetitious here, but just let it soak in for a minute. God is for us. He spared not his own son, but freely gave him up. He has given us all things. No one has a right to bring any charge because he is the judge and the righteous one who determines who is just and unjust, and he has declared us just who have put our faith in Christ. And there is no one who can condemn those whose sins have been swept away, who have been covered by the blood. A full atonement has been made. And so he now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We continue, <clears throat> as it is written, Paul continues, as it is written, for your sake, he's quoting from uh, Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. For Paul, these sufferings are not to be taken lightly, nor are they to be unexpected. There is a prosperity doctrine that goes around today that if you're, something is not right, it's your fault. God wants you to have the best in this life, which means no suffering, no pain, no struggle, no poverty. But this is not the story of history or the Bible story. 
These are not to be treated lightly or unexpectedly. They are the reality of living in a fallen world. Yes, throughout history, God's people have suffered. Paul does not ignore this reality, but puts it in proper perspective. Doesn't sweep it under the rug, but he addresses it, and he simply says that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. None of these things <clears throat> which have their root, basically these first have their root. Look through them. Their root in other human creatures. These are not the catastrophes that may be included in this. We suffer along with everyone else when there's a t tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake or, or the pandemic. The Christians are not free from this. But what we really fear are those who uh, wage war, those who wage un unjust injustice towards us. No, <clears throat> in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Sproul puts it this way, and I quote, the strength shown in enduring the hostility of persecutors and the pain of circumstances is astonishing. Physical death becomes a means by which martyrs conquer their accuser through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. He's getting this from Revelation 12, 11. And death, the last enemy, he's conquered. It has lost its sting. And he's removed by Jesus' death and resurrection. Yes, we wait for that day, and we long for the day when this reality will be completed. But it's, it's ours to, by faith, to, to revel in, to rest in, to delight in, uh, in times of disappointment and, shall we say, persecution. Paul knew experientially. You can read his testimony. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned and uh, st suffered starvation and, and hunger and the cold and all. He knew what it meant to suffer. This is this is a reality, and yet he could also that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. This is not some mental exercise or some theory for Paul, the living God and his Son and the Holy Spirit are the only reality to which all things must submit. So he could say with surety, with confidence, assurance, and full persuasion, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you hear the Father speaking to you through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul's confidence becomes contagious. But if it's not hidden in our hearts when these things come, we have no treasury to draw from. The Spirit works through the Word. We wonder sometimes how people endure. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, they're quoting Scripture. They had an intimate and a real relationship with the, the living God. Question number one. What shall we say to these things? What do you say to these things this morning? 
If God is for us, if God is for you, and He is for you, who can be against us? Who can be against you in any meaningful way? Question number three. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us all things? And if you've got anything, you got it from Him. These things just don't... All of the creation, they come from Him. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father above. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Summary, go away this morning. The God of the universe, the thrice holy God who created all and to whom all we will give account has declared me just in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And though others may condemn me and others may uh, cast dispersions my way, Jesus is the one who died for me. And he's alive. He's been raised. You can study the world religions. He's the only one who claims to be alive, claims to be God, and claims to be sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And in question number six, who shall separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No one, no one can separate us from the love of God or his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, we give thanks. I'll ask you to stand with me now and we'll sing a hymn of response. 533, I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith, and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When I kneel in prayer and with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Draw me nearer, 
nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. There are depths of love that I cannot know till I cross Blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to Thy precious bleeding side. Now hear this benediction from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Amen. Again, I'll remind you of our Wednesday night service and invite you out to hear from our brother Charlie, Psalm 91. Thank you. What time is that? I don't have a clue. 6.30. <laughs>